This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Cape Fear Unearthed, a podcast from Star News Media. I am your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington, North Carolina. When you're not joining me each week to talk about local history on this podcast, you can find my byline on coverage of the city, the local film and television industry, and my weekly TV Hunter column over at starnewsonline.com. This week, we're going to again crack open the local history books of persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures to dig up the legend of a real-life treasure island right here in the Cape Fear, and the pirates that are said to have passed through the region on their journeys. As always, I will share with you the story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend, and then I will bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. So settle in for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we set sail to search for the buried treasure of Money Island and explore the scourge of local piracy. No coastal North Carolina history lesson would be complete without drawing upon the wild, ravenous days when pirates plundered the high seas. The Cape Fear's history is littered with whispers and widely circulated legends of famous treacherous pirates pulling into the ports along the region's coastline in colonial days when they were feared by townspeople, hunted by the authorities, and lived lives that were defined by how much infamy they could gain and treasure they could steal. Hundreds of years later, it feels as though stories from that time period have been permeated by pirates at every turn. Last season, we explored the origins of the hidden tunnels that run underneath Wilmington, a colonial sewer system made even more mysterious by the centuries of rumors that they played host to pirates moving their booty in and out of the city. Today, it's easy to look upon pirates as alluring figures of the past, a mysterious nomadic way of life many of us can't even wrap our heads around and the Jack Sparrows of the big screen certainly paint a more digestible image. But in reality, a pirate's life was one of ever-shifting tides, a tireless existence in pursuit of a thirst that was never going to be quenched. And with traitors lurking everywhere, possibly even within your own crew, protecting one's treasure was essential. This tenet is at the heart of one of the region's most well-worn legends from the age of piracy one that has inspired treasure hunters to burrow into the local sand for centuries. It's the tale of Money Island, an unassuming patch of sand and trees off Wrightsville Beach, just east of Shandy Lane and south of Bradley Creek Point, that peaks above the water at low tide and just as quickly sinks back out of sight at nightfall. Thanks to some key homegrown stories, the island is forever tied to a pirate by the name of Captain William Kidd. While popular culture has taught us to think of all pirates as ragged, dirty, horny drunkards with a single-minded mission to pillage and rape, some pirates had an edge of refinement and charisma to them. 
Captain Kidd certainly fit that bill. One of the main accounts that has fueled the legend of Money Island is that of Andrew J. Howell, who, in his 1908 book Money Island, relayed the words of Jonathan Landstone, who claimed to be the great-grandson of Kidd's right-hand man, Captain John Redfield. In his telling of Money Island, Landstone describes Kidd as a sight to behold. Quote, He wore a crooked hat, decked with a yellow band and a black plume, and a coat of black velvet, which reached down to his knees. His trousers were blue and were adorned by large golden knee buckles. He wore massive silver buckles on his shoes, and with his well-proportioned body, neatly trimmed beard, and steady alert eyes, he presented as fine a picture of a man as could anywhere be found. End quote. Of Scottish descent, Kidd became wise to the ways of pirating at an early age, serving on the decks of a few pirate vessels before and supposedly after he immigrated to New York City. Despite experience working alongside pirates, he was dispatched by the Crown as a privateer to protect English interests against French attacks in the 1690s, and even received orders to hunt down pirates in the Indian Ocean in 1696. It was on the latter mission that Kidd found the pull of the pirate lifestyle and the riches and freedom that came along with it to be undeniable. On that trip, he had failed to secure the capture of many pirates and became desperate for results, eventually turning to the criminal activity himself. Although legend says that he was talented at securing treasure, Kidd's anger and vicious whims alienated his crew in the process, eventually facing mutiny and desertion. It's no wonder, then, that the legend goes Kidd believed he must bury his treasure to keep it safe not only from his rivals, but also from the men on his own ship. Tales of Kidd's buried treasure stretch from Nova Scotia to the Bahamas, but one such story tells of the day when his vessel was passing by the still uninhabited coast of what would become Wilmington, when he spotted a small chain of islands. Seizing the opportunity, Kidd called upon Redfield to help him bury two massive chests of treasure, for which he would return when he knew it was safe to retrieve them. The pair, along with two other men, rode out to the island under the cloak of night and buried the two chests on what would become known as Money Island. Redfield was loyal to his boss. So when Kidd revealed his plan to leave his ally behind to guard the precious loot from robbers and other pirates, Redfield agreed to the detail. Should Kidd not return after five years, Redfield was allowed to dig up the smaller chest and claim half for himself. Should another five years pass with no word from Kidd, he could do the same with the other chest. Before he left, Kidd gave Redfield enough goods and supplies to build a house on the lonely coast, and two men to stay behind with him, though they didn't know the location of the chests. Kidd left his trusted friend with one other simple instruction. Should a party return without him, claiming to be on his orders to retrieve the gold, they must first present his insignia, or Redfield was to keep the location a secret. With those instructions, Kidd set sail and left Redfield behind as the guardian of the island's hidden heart. Years went by. Redfield married a nice Charleston woman and made a home for himself, which he named Rindout, within sight of Money Island. But one day, 
the group noticed a boat bearing the marking of Kid's ship approaching the island. But Kid wasn't on board. The small convoy was led by one of Redfield's former shipmates, who arrived with Kid's supposed orders to bring back the treasure. Only they couldn't produce any kind of insignia or written consent. Redfield quickly recognized his predicament. Not only was he outgunned, his two allies that Kid had left behind had been persuaded by the newcomers to turn on him in exchange for a cut of the loot. These men had sailed back to North Carolina on tales of that night that Kid and Redfield unloaded a cut of the ship's takings and sailed off into the darkness, only to return empty-handed. In other words, they knew the treasure was out there. But Redfield wasn't about to give up the ghost on the location of the chests. Instead, he allowed himself and his wife to be taken prisoner, repeatedly threatened, and even chained up in an attempt to wear down his resolve and loyalty to the pirate captain who had left him behind. Eventually, after tiring of searching the island, the men took the couple aboard their ship and headed for Charleston, hoping distance and further strife would loosen their lips. But as soon as they arrived in port, the crew was arrested on suspicion of piracy, and Redfield and his wife were freed. Landstone's story concludes with the notion that after the ordeal, Redfield swore off piracy in exchange for a normal landlocked life, never to return to Money Island. Kidd would never return either, according to the legend. On October 30, 1698, the violent pirate hit one of his mouthy crew over the head with a bucket and fractured his skull, an injury that would claim his life the next day. At the time, laws were somewhat lax on the high seas, but killing your employee was still forbidden, and it would come back to bite Kid. Years later, after fleeing to America when his whole crew abandoned him, Kid was duped into being arrested on July 6, 1699, and stowed away in a jail with his wife for a year. After being extradited to London, he was tried on charges of piracy and one count of murder. He was found guilty and hanged in the public square on May 23, 1701. When the executioner pulled the lever, the noose broke on the first try, but the second was successful in snapping his neck. After his death, his body was tarred and hanged in a cage over the River Thames for three years as a warning to others who sought a life of piracy. The legend of Money Island is not as keen on specific dates as the otherwise well-documented life of Captain Kidd. So we don't exactly know when the men are supposed to have buried the treasure, or when Redfield's ordeal happened in relation to Kidd's final years. But it's safe to say, the legend wouldn't be as good if Kidd ever came back to claim his treasure. This way, it's just waiting under the sand to be found. In his book, Howe said he met Landstone in the 1840s while digging for treasure on the island. After meeting, the two joined forces and dug up a rusty iron sheet and some blackened, corroded gold coins, which they believed was all that remained of the chests. According to Howe, he could never show those coins that he found because they were lost to the careless housekeeping of his youth. In 1939, the Associated Press reported two men had pulled the remnants of a massive chest from the sands of Money Island. 
but it was empty, the wood having been eaten away by the shifting sands. Even if these stories are just more extensions of the island's legend, it adds a fascinatingly accessible element to the standard pirate tale. On Money Island, anyone could find treasure. Today, the land, or at least what hasn't been swallowed up by the ocean, is privately owned and no longer allows casual treasure hunters. Much of the island's erosion was natural, but decades of people digging into its sand and trampling over its face with metal detectors certainly hasn't helped its condition. While the small piece of land may be at the mercy of the ocean that surrounds it, the legend remains unburdened by the corrosive cruelty of time. With hundreds of years of stories to its name, Money Island now lives in the collective consciousness of the Cape Fear region. Kidd and Redfield's supposed knowledge of the treasure's location died more than 300 years ago with them, a convenient loss that gifts Money Island and its mysteries an immortality no amount of poking or prodding will ever cure. Before we get to this week's interview, I want to give you an update on Money Island because I spoke with one of the members of the family who owns it, and she talked with some of her family members about their memories of the island. And as I mentioned, it has been eroded over time. Uh, She said that at dead low tide, there's about an acre of it left. It's mostly just sand. About a decade ago, her and her family went out there and planted some trees or attempted to plant some trees. They don't know how those have fared, but it was an attempt to kind of keep this island alive, keep this place that they've owned alive, because it is tied to their memories. It's tied to their memories as a family. She said that her uncle used to have treasure hunts on that island for the kids in the family. He would make treasure maps, and he would send them out to kind of look for for fake gold and fake treasure, and he would provide a few jump scares to to make it kind of a fun event. And uh, it just shows that this legend not only lives in this community, but it also lives within this family's history. And they continue to kind of celebrate it and lean into it. I got the sense from Sue that uh, she's proud her family owns this island because it is such a notable place in this area. And so uh, I just wanted to give you an update because I think that is a really important part of the Money Island legend. It is still out there. Now we're going to transition from the story of Money Island into a look more broadly at the age of piracy and its impact locally here in the Cape Fear region. And joining me today is John Billy Ray Morris, who was formerly the director of the state's underwater archaeology branch at Fort Fisher. And he now focuses on his own research and the Southeastern Archaeological Services firm, which he has with his wife. Thank you so much for joining me today, Billy Ray. Thanks for inviting me, Honor. So tell me a little bit about uh, what brought you into this field of work and, uh, and what brought you into this area. Well, I'm from here and I grew up diving and surfing along this coast. And in the course of doing both, I ended up meeting the first underwater archaeologist from North Carolina, and he ended up creating the program at East Carolina University, where I ended up going for a master's degree. I've gotten to do this all around the world. And I came back here about six or seven years ago and ended up giving about five years of my time to the Office of State Archaeology and the Underwater Branch. So you know this area's uh, shipwrecks pretty well, or at least the ones that we've found. Well, I know them as well as anybody else. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about the perception of 
piracy in this area. I think there's a misconception that this place was crawling with pirates, but that's not the case with this area or the state of North Carolina, correct? No, uh, you know, they talk about the golden age of piracy and Blackbeard, and obviously there's a lot of emphasis on Blackbeard because his wreck was found up in Beaufort. But it's kind of a rarity. A guy that was with him, Steve Bonnet, did actually get captured here down at the mouth of the Cape Fear River. But the more lucrative trade routes were to be found in the Caribbean, and pirates were all about profit, and they weren't Johnny Depp and Tyrone Power. <laughs> and, you know, as, as, as me and you have spoken about, uh, this area wasn't really the best climate for someone who was on a pirate ship. No, I mean, it was a very, very hard life at sea at that time, uh, probably beyond our comprehension in the 21st century. And piracy was even a more harsh environment to deal with. And operating out of North Carolina, the chances for a lucrative prize were limited. So the pirates tended to cluster around the made trade routes that focused on wind patterns and currents and the ports that had most of the money, which were out of the Caribbean. And uh, it was just warmer there year round. It was warmer. The water was clearer. Uh, You know, obviously Blackbeard has ties to North Carolina. Both he and Bonnet were given pardons by the governor of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. But Blackbeard was killed within a year of that time. Bonnet was captured and later executed in Charleston. But piracy was not rampant along the North Carolina coast at any time. It's, it's definitely flashy. It's, it's, it's a sexier tale if, uh, if there's pirates everywhere. Um, uh, and it looks good, man. The optics are absolutely yeah. awesome. I mean, everybody that's ever worked with me around Queen Anne's Revenge, their first question is like, well, have you met Johnny Depp? How <laughs> to put that on Facebook or something. <laughs> you know? But no, it wasn't like that at all. Now, you know, we also spoke about how off this coast, there's, you said 5,000 documented uh, shipwrecks, but there's only, there's only a certain number that have been found. With historical documentation, there are over 5,000 known wrecks in the rivers and sounds and the ocean off of North Carolina. We have found, as archaeologists, less than 1,000 of them. Primarily, the stuff that we have seen has been focused around the Civil War. There's obviously earlier stuff, such as Blackbeard. There's an absolutely beautiful early 18th century wreck up near Rose Hill in the Northeast Cape Fear. So North Carolina's maritime heritage is well represented in the archaeological record. Was piracy around when you start getting the the bigger development of this area as a port? Piracy is waning. At the end of the first quarter of the 18th century, it's slowly starting to go away. And a lot of pirates came to that trade by being privateers, which in time of war, a privateer was a privately owned vessel that was commissioned by a nation state to raid the enemy. And when the war ended, a lot of these guys said, well, it was pretty cool, pretty easy money. And they turned to piracy. But it ended up, once the governments figured out that that wasn't the way to go, piracy was eradicated brutally. Ask Blackbeard, ask Steve Bonnet. Yeah. Ask Captain Kidd from the Money Island treasure story. Not only did they hang him, they left his body hanging beside the docks on the Thames. Yeah. That's pretty harsh. Yeah, that is. <laughs> that's a heck of a warning to send to someone. <laughs> now, I want to speak specifically about uh, Steve Bonnet because Southport identifies with him because that's where he was captured. There's a plaque uh, out there. Uh, Bonnet's Creek is what it's been named where he was. But what do we know about Steve Bonnet that brought him here? He was tied to Blackbeard. He was. He was a, a fairly wealthy man from Barbados and took to piracy later in life, and he probably did it, according to some sources, just to get away. And he actually paid his crew wages, which was utterly unheard of. But all accounts say that he was relatively 
useless on the quarterdeck, had no respect from the crew, um, ended up falling in with Blackbeard down in the Bahamas and was actually with Blackbeard when Blackbeard lost Queen Anne's Revenge. He took the same pardon Blackbeard did, but he kind of uh, relapsed. South Carolina had had about enough of it. It was their militia that came up and captured him down at Southport. And so that creek where they they identified this this capture, he was, correct me if I'm wrong, but he was hiding a ship there away from this, this group, correct? Well, he was up in that creek to careen one of the ships he had with him, mm-hmm. which means you sail it up into the dirt and let it lay over to one side and scrape all the growth off of the bottom. Okay. It'll make the ship go faster. Mm-hmm. And it's a nasty, terrible job. That's why they invented anti-fouling bottom paint. Well, he was actually captured trying to run out the mouth of the river because he saw the ships from South Carolina. And one thing you have to think about naval engagements at that time, it wasn't missiles and rapid firing guns. You know, a single battle could take hours just to get the wind in the right place. And he and the South Carolina guys all ran aground. But when he was finally captured aboard Royal James, it was somewhere on the western side of the mouth of the Cape Fear River. I've seen it referenced as the Battle of the Cape Fear River. Um, but as you read it, it doesn't really sound like a battle. It's more of, a, as you said, kind of getting in the right place and then and eventual surrender. It was eventual surrender. And apparently... Bonnet was encouraged by his crew to surrender. By this time, piracy was no longer given a nod and a wink, as he and his crew found out. Yeah. Um, are there any other pirates that we know, you know, might not have a story like that, but may have passed through the area for sure? Or is it really just speculation of where a pirate may have pulled into a port? Well, actual documentation from that period, you know, speaking as an archaeologist, you don't always have a written record. That's why you do the whole archaeology thing. And pirates, you know, they didn't keep logbooks that were handed over at the end of a voyage, and they weren't government-registered ships. To say that none of the famous pirates from Kidd or Calico Jack Rackham or any of those guys, that they absolutely never passed through here? I don't think you could ever say that. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, I don't think you could ever say that they did either. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah. So, you know, we could have played host to pirates, but they didn't have the same impact as they did elsewhere here in the in the Cape Fear region. No, and it wasn't like Port Royal in Jamaica or NASA in the Bahamas or New Providence Island. I mean, those places, they were like pirate cities. But the British crown put an end to that. Eventually, all of the sovereign European states did when they found that legitimate trade was actually better and safer and turned a bigger profit. So it ended pretty quickly. And when you think of the romanticism of pirates, how romantic do we view the Somali pirates when they take a merchant ship or hold a yacht for ransom, you know, because they're Somalis with an AK-47? They're sure not Johnny Depp, but they're still pirates. Yeah, that's a, it's a whole different era of piracy that we see now. And uh, I think you know, just looking at it now, a distance from the age of piracy when we would see the the Captain Kids and the Steed Bonnets, uh, it's easier to be forgiving and be fascinated by that because, um, you know, we're hundreds of years later. Somali pirates are right now. <laughs> so. they're, they're right now. And to think that the pirates of two or three hundred years ago were any less brutal, I think, is facetiousness. We don't know, obviously, but it was a harsh life. Two, three hundred years ago, yeah. there's no reason to think that these guys were uh, heroes in high boots and velvet doublets. Yeah. 
I'll say that this area and this state still identify with pirates. I mean, just like you, I am a a fellow pirate from East Carolina (laughs) University. This was an appropriate conversation to have with you. Uh, But even this area, we, you know, like we mentioned, Southport has the the plaque and and I'll put a picture of that plaque on our our Facebook group for people to see. But there's an an identity with that. And it's because we're a coastal area. But uh, there is definitely some romanticism there. Well, there is. And, you know, and it will always sell T-shirts. And, you know, it's cool. I mean, when you think about it, the skull and crossbones, that's a good look. I mean, you know, it's popular today. And looking back at history, it's real easy to put on the rose-colored glasses and look away from the disease and the brutality and, you know, outright murder on the high seas and romanticize these people. But I would defy people that want to look at it that way to stand on the deck with one of them. Yeah, that's true. Um, though I will say in this area, we uh, we get the fun of having a number of shipwrecks. They just weren't from the age of piracy. They are uh, usually tied to, to blockade runners or something like that. So there's definitely history out in the water. It's just uh, it might not be what you think it is. No, it's definitely not piracy. But North Carolina's maritime heritage, it spans the entire history of the state. Mm-hmm. And this region has some of the best preserved wrecks in the world. It's a good a good place to, to do the job that you do and have done for uh, many years now. So uh, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Hey, man, thanks a lot for inviting me. That's it for this week's episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and the story of Money Island and local pirates. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode where we will explore another tale from the history books. Until then, be sure to share your thoughts on this week's episode on Twitter with the hashtag CFUnearthed. Or you can email us your thoughts at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. As you listen to this second season, we also encourage you to join our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their thoughts on the region's history. In that group, I will also be posting extra content, like pictures pertaining to each week's episode, including historic pictures of Money Island, and more as the season progresses. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. Finally, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com. Additional editing was done by Adam Fish, and this episode was recorded at WHQR Studios in downtown Wilmington. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you stream this show so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next week, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you. Oh,